This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. At SoundsTrue.com, you can find hundreds of downloadable audio learning programs, plus books, music, videos, and online courses and events. At SoundsTrue.com, we think of ourselves as a trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, my guest is Jonathan Faust. Jonathan is a senior teacher and former president of Kripalu Center for Yoga and Health, as well as a guiding teacher with the Insight Meditation Community of Washington, D.C., and a founder of the Meditation Teacher Training Institute in Washington, D.C. A workshop and retreat leader for more than 20 years, he's been featured in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, Yoga Journal, and more. With Sounds True, Jonathan Faust has created the audio program Body-Centered Inquiry, Meditation Training to Awaken Your Inner Guidance, Vitality, and Loving Heart. He's a featured guest teacher at the ongoing Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Certification Program, led by his wife, Tara Brock, and also Jack Cornfield, a program that's produced by Sounds True. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Jonathan Faust and I spoke about the technique of focusing, as developed by Eugene Genlin, and what it means to locate the felt sense in our experience, inquire into it, and then also experience a felt shift. We talked about applying body-centered inquiry to physical pain and how Jonathan has worked deeply for many years using body-centered inquiry to explore his own migraines and what he's discovered, which might surprise you in the process. Jonathan also led us through a body-centered inquiry practice for making decisions. And finally, we talked about how to use body-centered inquiry to ask the question, what's between me and being free? Here's my conversation with Jonathan Faust. To begin with, Jonathan, can you tell our listeners what is body-centered inquiry for people who are hearing this for the first time? They've never heard of body-centered inquiry before. You know, there are a couple ways I can do that. One of my favorite ways is when I first ran across a, a byline for a massage therapist, and they said, your issues are in your tissues. That was one helpful approach. The other one I find is um, when, I, when I first moved into an ashram way, way back when, and I had um, just really kind of discovered I had a body. And I realized that for pretty much the 20, first 25 years of my life, I thought the only reason I had a body was to make my head portable. Hmm. But then I started, I just started practicing and I started really looking at these perennial teachings that actually said that the body is the doorway. And, and what I found over the course of my own practice was indeed my issues were in my tissues, that when I could shift my attention from the story to actually how, how it lived on the inside, I could actually experience transformation of those, of those particular issues, those particular emotions. And so I began to look at different approaches to, to how to explore what it means to be in the body and so forth. Help me understand the process of discovering the issues and what's even underlying those issues that our body is holding. You know, my, my, um, my study was influenced by Eugene Gentlin, who, who founded the, uh, the technique of focusing. Mm -hmm. And many, many years ago, he, he just passed a couple of weeks ago um, in his late 80s, I believe. But he, um, he would tell the story of how after he completed his PhD in philosophy, he was realizing he wasn't complete. So he was working on his PhD in psychology at the University of Chicago. And he was given this task to find out 
who are the best therapists and what's the best technique? And there was one moment that, that really struck me, which was really his light bulb moment when he was observing someone kind of in the therapeutic, you know, inquiry process. And she was saying to her therapist, I am so angry with my sister. And then she closed her eyes for a moment. And then she opened her eyes and she said, that's not it. I'm, I'm disappointed in my sister. And for him, he thought, what just happened? You know, here's a story in the mind but when she checked in with with the body, the felt sense of the body, those words didn't resonate with what her body was telling her. And so from there, he he developed this technique called focusing, which has been so influential in in psychology and this whole mind body um, exploration in our culture. So in many ways, it really is this primary distinction between the story in your head and whether or not it truly resonates with what it feels like on the inside. Mm -hmm. I'm imagining many listeners who have been told, whether it's by a therapist or a friend, or they've maybe even heard about this focusing technique, go inside and where is that in your body? And their response might be something like, uh, excuse me, uh, how is, you know, what are you asking me to do? Do you think my anger's in my thigh or, or you know, my finger? What, what are you talking about? So can you help that person when someone says, where is that in your body? How they actually can really reliably locate something that they can trust. Yeah, that really is the issue. Sometimes I've sort of invited people into that inquiry. So when you when you think about that issue, you know, what is it, you know, what do you feel on the inside? And they'll say, well, what, what do you mean on the inside? So oftentimes I'll say, well, you might want to sense in kind of the midline and the core of the body. It's, you know, the kind of the throat and the heart and the, the belly. And so what do you feel? And then they'll say, I feel skin. I feel my belly going up and down. Well, what we're looking for is something a little more subtle. And when we talk about this 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 felt sense of how how your body holds a thought or emotion or um, or anything like that, what we're looking for is this this energetic experience. And again, primarily it's in the core of the body, but I like to think of it as as showing up in three fundamental ways. One is where it will be strong and undeniable. And that may be the lump in your throat or the burning around your eyes like you're going to cry or the the ache in your heart or that, that that sick kind of twisted feeling in your guts like something terrible has happened or is going to happen. And those are unmistakable. You, you can't miss them. The other possibility is they might flicker or or blip. And it's like when you're meditating and you might feel a little wave of sadness come through, but then you go back and you look and you can't find it. It's sort of there and then and it left. And the third quality is is where I find where a lot of the fruit lies, and that is that that felt sense will be uh, it'll be amorphous and vague and unformed. The analogy I keep coming back to is from Joseph Campbell, where he talked about the the big circle. Imagine a big circle, and there's a line through it. And above the line is what you're aware of. Below the line is what you're not aware of. And from what I can tell, if you relax and pay attention, the line will move. And so you'll begin to, as you meditate or just practice non-judging awareness, you'll be more aware of the repetitive thoughts. You'll be more aware of sensations. And you'll be more aware of, of really what it feels like in the inside. So, so the magic word is something. You know, so when I think about that phone call that I have got to make on Monday that I'm dreading, there's something kind of clenching around my heart. And that 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 word something can kind of open up possibilities to to sense the subtlety of what's there. And part of the beauty of it is that when you pay attention and and language it, you can get a get a better sense of what's what's actually in there. Now, you've said several things, Jonathan, that I think are really interesting. One is you might 
start with a focusing process by working with the core of the body, the throat and the chest and the belly. Why is that? Why is the core of the body going to be the most responsive? It seems to me that that's primarily where we where we tend to hold emotions. You know, you know, and we know in the gut, the enteric nervous system has got a huge amount of out of intelligence to it, and we know the you know the gut feel, the the development of hara. You know, in 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 Japan, when you talk about someone having strong hara, they've got that strong gut feel, and you know all the different forms of intuition. You know, some of us process visually, some of us process, you know, more through audio, you know, how things sound. But I find that the most reliable and the most kind of challenging intuitive connection is the kinesthetic, uh, what it feels like on the inside. You know, those times when you just you just know, you, you just have a gut feel, you, you feel it in your bones. It's, it's, it's really paying attention to that realm that can open up so many possibilities. Mm -hmm. And then in looking for the felt sense in the core of the body, the three different possibilities you mentioned, I certainly can imagine someone saying, yeah, strong and undeniable, you know, a big lump in my throat, I get it. Oh, I get the flickering quality too. It's coming, it's going, maybe it's something in my heart. I feel a sense of contraction. It comes, it goes. I get that. But now we get to this last category when it feels amorphous and vague, the felt sense in the body. How do you help people when that's what they're experiencing and they're trying to find the intelligence in the felt sense, but they're saying, you know, gosh, I, I don't know. I could be making something up. I'm not really sure I'm feeling what? Something? I feel more like a kind of vague. I'm not sure. Yes, it's so so subtle. So there are a couple analogies, and 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 one of them again I think comes from the kind of the school of focusing is to, to think of that felt sense as a wild animal at the edge of the woods. You know, it's like when you when you you see a deer at the edge of the woods, you can't chase after it. You know, you can't seduce it in, but you can let it know that you see it. And there's a very subtle connection that begins. The other is to to sense this something as as a child that doesn't have words or or as a, an as an animal that you're holding that that can't communicate through words, but you can tune into it through through a feeling tone. So that's kind of a primary way of coming into contact with that which is below the line and kind of wanting to come up to the surface. Mm -hmm. I'd also love if you could make more explicit the connection between what's below the line, what we're not aware of, and our body itself. I mean, this phrase that you started off with, you know, the issues are in your tissues. How do you understand that about what's below the line, what we're not aware of, and how that's held in our bodies? You know, for many, many years, I felt just like when you have a low-grade fever, I realized I had low-grade anxiety. That there was this, this something in the background that seemed to color everywhere I went that, that either brought in a subtle sense of distrust ranging up to a more profound sense of dread. And I think for, for, for many of us, we, we have that sense of there's, there's just something here that is between me and feeling free or, or feeling happy. And one of the things that I have found very helpful through through my study of focusing, and one of the things I most appreciate about, about Dr. Jenlin in particular is that he and his cronies were, uh, were real anarchists. Uh, they were basically saying, if you're not creating on your own model, then you're not doing this correctly. And through my own practice of, you know, practicing through the lens of, of yoga and through the lens of Buddhism, I really began to see this connection between, you know, these two wings of awareness. You know, one wing being being wisdom, the capacity to see clearly. And the second, this wing of compassion, you know, the, the capacity to be with. And just as when when you begin to slow down and pay attention to what it means to be present, what I find is I notice all the ways I'm not present. 
but in that same way, when I really pay attention to what it means to be to be free or to be happy, I start to become aware of where I'm not. And inevitably, that's a big part of this process that, you know, just as in the Tibetan tradition, you know, they, they speak of shempa, you know, there's this clench. And when there's what I find in my own practice and working with others, that when there's a sincere desire to be free, you know, or a sincere, a sincere desire to, to, to open into happiness, it automatically begins to heighten all that which is between you and feeling free or feeling happy. Well, I want to take this example you shared from your own life story of feeling this underlying sense of anxiety. I think a lot of people probably can relate to that. And if it's not an underlying sense of anxiety, it's an underlying sense of always being kind of focused on the future or solving a problem or some sense of not being free, happy, and present. How did you use body-centered inquiry to go into that pervasive feeling of anxiety below the surface in order to understand what's really going on here? What's really the root yeah. of this? Yeah. The, um, the model that I find so helpful through my own practice and, and my own study is the, the model that uses the acronym of RAIN, R-A-I-N. The R is to recognize or realize what's happening. The A is to ask if you can allow it. The I is to investigate. And the N is to is to nurture what you find with with empathy and compassion. So in my own practice, when when I discover that that something inside is between me and feeling free, that first step, of course, is just to recognize it. And primarily where I recognize it is in my mind, you know, the, the hallucinations of all the possible things that could go wrong and so forth. But when I can begin to shift my attention from the story to the inside, then I can begin to sense that where that unease lives on the inside. You know, the, the, maybe the restriction of my breath or kind of a, a chronic sense like deep in my, in my gut that just won't quite relax. And I find sometimes when I can see that, it'll begin to shift just because I notice it. But oftentimes it's a little more chronic. And that sort of leads to the next inquiry is, well, can I, can I allow this? Can I, can I make room with this? Can I be with this? And most often I can, sometimes either it feels like it's too much or it feels like I'll be flooded by something and then I might strategically shift my attention. But if I can, then that opens up the, the I part of this acronym, which is the investigation. And there it becomes a question of inquiring as to how intimately I can locate and feel those sensations on the inside. So, for example, at one time, I was very aware of this, of a deep sense of unease in my, you know, deep in my, my guts. And what we're trying to do in the practice is to, to see it clearly. So some of the avenues can be to really ask or just to inquire, well, does this have a shape? Does it have a color? Is there a sense of its, of its density? And, and I could begin to kind of get this you know, this sense of, of a shape, you know, and of a size. And, you know, for me in this particular time, it was, it was just a, a fist, a kind of a tightly held fist. And then a question popped into my mind, which was, how old is this? Like, how old is this tight clenched inside? And, and I had a sense of it being very, very young. Part of the practice was, again, just to see it and to recognize that, that this sort of tight fist had been there for as long as I could possibly remember. And then that led to, to the question around being with or nurturing. One of the favorite questions I find in my, in my own practice 
is that when I can really locate that felt sense inside and I can sense how old it is, maybe I can sense its point of view, is just to let it know I see it. I might even try to imagine what it's like from its perspective. And then the question that I find very helpful is, how does this want me to be with it right now? And then to wait and to listen. And I'm oftentimes surprised because what I imagine what it needs is to be bathed in soothing light or held up to the light of awareness. But oftentimes what it needs is just to be seen. And, and I remember in this particular instance, I just had a sense of that. It was just saying, I just want you to see me. And so as I did, giving it my full attention just to see it, it led to what's called kind of in the, in the focusing language of a felt shift. That, that tightly held fist began to diffuse. And it began to soften and it began to open. And it began to, to, to open into a greater sense of ease and a greater sense of well-being that led to just tears of relief that were really quite extraordinary. Okay, Jonathan, I still have several questions here about Great. the process of body-centered inquiry. And I want to make sure that everybody is fully tracking when it comes to identifying the felt sense in their experience. Yeah. And so it's one thing to know what the felt sense is when, let's say, you have to give a talk and you have butterflies in your stomach. Like, oh, I get it. But in the course of our everyday life, there could be a lot of different things going on. Can you have several felt senses happening in your body at once? Do you choose one to inquire into? How are you sure you've identified the important felt sense of the moment? Yeah, what a great question. And then this is one of the best strategies as you're practicing. Because, again, when you're sensing what's below the line, it's, it's vague and unformed and amorphous. And the reason it's below the line is because you haven't clearly seen it. So one of the, one of the best things to do is to, when you, when you feel that felt sense, you know, let's say, you know, you, you have a strong memory of, of being uh, in a relationship that, that went wrong. Ouch. And, you, and, and then you check in. Okay, so how does my body hold that memory? And let's say you begin to feel something forming kind of in your throat, like, like a, a clenching of the throat. And you begin to feel like a heaviness or an ache kind of running down through the center of your heart. So you begin to recognize that. You begin to see it. You let it know you see it. And then you might inquire. One of the, again, there are many questions, but one of the most helpful questions is, is there an emotional word that resonates with this feeling on the inside? And so you might sense, okay, well, um, this is disappointment. So now what you do is you, you validate that, you verify that. So you'll take that word disappointment and you'll check back in with that feeling in the throat and the heart and say, does the word disappointment, does that resonate with this feeling? Is that the right word? And it might be, or it might be, no, that's not it. Then you'll wait for 10, 30 seconds, and then maybe you'll realize this is grief. And sometimes in that, that recognition that grief will resonate, it will be like, that is the word. And that has just moved you into a much more intimate recognition of what's there. And then, of course, the question is, well, then what does this need right now? How does this want me to be with it? And to continue that, that investigation. So, so really verifying the felt sense, you know, validating it by going back in and checking is a very, very important part of the process. How do you make sure in finding the felt sense and putting an emotion to it and then verifying it that you're not going up into the thinking process and being, oh, yeah, I remember how terrible that relationship was and, you know, that person betrayed me. And so suddenly you're now overlaying a memory 
onto something. It's not necessarily bubbling up from within your body. Yes, it can. It can. It's a challenging process. Um, but oftentimes, I think what people find with some training is they real they realize, oh, I'm completely in a story right now. And then the invitation again is to come back to that felt sense. But again, oftentimes when you know when people practice meditation, when they when they practice an active inquiry process like this into what's between them and feeling free, as you start to unpeel the onion, there can be very painful memories in there, and there can be trauma in there. You know, sort of that that coalesced sense of of. Um, of fear and helplessness. And that's where when we come back to that model of, of rain, you know, there's one thing to recognize fear and helplessness, but then it's so critical to inquire, can I be with it? And sometimes the answer is no. You know, there'll be a sense this is too much. Um, I, I feel like I'll be flooded. And the, the strategic thing to, to do then is to, again, let it know you see it. Here's this wild animal at the edge of the woods. Let it know you see it another time when the conditions are different, maybe when you've got more energy or you've got some support or maybe you can be facilitated. Your intention is to be with it, but there it might be very helpful to strategically shift your attention. You're listening to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. We welcome you to learn more about our collection of more than a thousand learning programs and receive three free gifts just for visiting us. Go to soundstrue.com backslash free. That's soundstrue.com backslash free. And now back to Insights at the Edge. I'd love to ask you a question that I found in my own process, and I imagine other people may have as well in attempting body-centered inquiry, that you can recognize what's going on and allow it. And then in the inquiry process, in order to not get too conceptual and leave the real feeling, there isn't a sense necessarily of resolution and knowing what's really at the roots of this, you know, staying with the felt experience, being with it, nurturing it. But at the end of it, if you said to me, what did you discover? I might say, you know, I was with it and it changed and I don't really know what the core roots were. I didn't get that far. Yes. Uh, a key element I find, well, there, there are two key elements in the inquiry process. The first one is to abandon all expectations. Uh, that's I find that to be very, very helpful, you know, to kind of renounce the fruit of the actions. But the other one is is to substitute the intention to figure it out with the intention to become more familiar with it. And there's a beautiful line that's attributed to the Buddha where the where the Buddha said, familiarity leads to wisdom. And I find for myself, when I can release myself from from wanting to figure it out or, or nuke it so it'll never come back again, if I have an intention to become more familiar with it, something kind of softens inside, something opens up inside a little bit. And and quite often that, that will lead to some form of, uh, of a deeper recognition, a deeper sense of possibility, and sometimes even to insight. Okay, now I want to circle back on something that you said, Jonathan, that caught my attention. You said that the focusing people were anarchists in a certain kind of way, <laughs> and that they encouraged people to create their own models. And I thought, wow, that's unusual. That's not like fitting into a particular tradition or lineage or here's the four of this and the nine of that. And so tell me more about this idea of creating your own approach to going into your body and why that was important to the focusing people, teachers. Yeah, that's that's my understanding. And I could be I just could be completely deluded on that one. But that's certainly what I heard when I was studying. 
and I, and I do believe, and what I've seen is, you know, through that, the tradition of focusing, that there, there are different models, there are different approaches that people have out there. Um, some are very prescriptive in the process, you know, it's, it's a little more linear. Others are much more wide open and, and more intuitive. And the model that I have found so helpful is to kind of, to really see this through this lens of Buddhist psychology. Um, but ultimately, and, and what I love about this is that this is a, a process of discovery uh, for each one of us. You know, each one of us has our, our own particular internal constellation of causes and conditions. And while I find there are helpful riverbanks, and I've, again, I find the model of, of recognizing, allowing, investigating, and then meeting what you find with that intention to sort of bring a sense of nurturing and loving presence, that model I find is really helpful for me. But then inside of it, we all have different, we all have different approaches. I like to describe this process of body-centered inquiry as very organic. Another translation is very sloppy. You know, there's a, this kind of a, a natural sort of unwinding when we really begin to listen to the felt sense. Now, I want to apply body-centered inquiry to something that I think we're all familiar with, which is physical pain. And to see if you could give us an example and walk us through how we might engage in a body-centered inquiry process when we're in pain. Maybe something's gone off in our back or our neck, something like that. Yeah. So there, there are a few things that I find um, fascinating about physical pain. And one of them, is, of course, is the relationship between the mind and the pain itself. And how when we think about the pain, of course, it oftentimes becomes much more, much more dramatic in our minds. And the practice is to, to bring ourselves to, to the actual real-time experience of, of what's, again, what's happening on the inside. So there are a number of strategies, but, you know, maybe I could share with you, I think, one of the most helpful ways of working with physical pain. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I been, I've got, I get migraines since I was probably six years old. Mm. And they can be quite crippling. And this it has been one of the best uh, approaches that, that I have found. And really what it, what it comes down to is identifying that sensations in the body will show up in three different categories. There are the sensations that are pleasant, the sensations that are unpleasant, and then the sensations that are in between, kind of the, the neutral sensations. So when, when you experience physical pain, when you just notice where it is, it's helpful to ascribe that physical pain as, let's say, zone one. That, that, that's zone one. And what the mind tends to do is it fixates on zone one. Like, like when you're getting a, a tooth filled in the dentist, the tongue keeps going back to, to that sensation. So there's a fixation that occurs when we're focused on zone one. So the practice I have found helpful is to identify the neutral and the pleasant sensations as zone, as zone two. So what you'll do is you hold the intention to keep your intention in zone two. And you let your awareness flow freely around zone two. So it might be right elbow relaxed, left palm open. And when the mind goes back to fixate on zone one, you notice that, but then you guide it back to, again, let your awareness kind of flow freely, identifying the location and the quality of feeling in zone two. What, what happens for me are a few things, and I've done this many, many times. One of the most helpful things is I will have a realization that I can be with the pain. Not all at once, but I can actually tolerate it. The second thing is there's a tendency sometimes for zone one, the unpleasant sensations to begin to kind of bleed into zone two. The zone, the, the boundaries will become a little bit more amorphous because I'm holding the space. I, I recognize, let's say with a migraine, that 94% of my body actually feels okay. It's the 6% is freaking out. 
But if I hold that balance of the unpleasant with the pleasant and neutral, something begins to shift. Again, back to that something. And when I have that sense of presence, then what I might do is I might actually bring my attention to zone one and just let my attention begin to move around again freely. Oh, the left part of the occiput pulsing. The sense of the, the rim around my left eye socket, white pulsing. And by bringing my attention there, sometimes I'll begin to feel that tightly bound sense of the physical pain will begin to experience that felt shift where it'll become more expansive or more amorphous. Sometimes not. Sometimes it doesn't seem to shift at all, but I have just been able to come into a deeper sense of relaxation and, and establish a way that I can actually be with that unpleasant sensation. Now, that's very helpful, that example. And it does bring up a further question for me, which is, you mentioned you've had migraines since you were a young boy, since six. Have you discovered through being with and becoming familiar with the physical sense of the migraines and feeling this felt shift, what the emotional or psychological roots might be for you in the manifestation of migraines? And how? How did you come to that if you did? Yeah, I, I would love to report that through this process, I am migraine free, um, but I'm not. And I think sometimes it's a, another helpful question when there's pain in the body is, is this biological or does it feel more emotional or psychological? And uh, I've thrown everything, everything I've had at, at my migraines. And I, and I have come to have a very, very deep understanding through my own, you know, my own inquiry by bringing loving presence to the experience of, of a very deep sense of empathy and compassion for, for the helplessness that, you know, that I felt as a kid, uh, it could have not being understood, et cetera, et cetera. You know, all, everything I've added to the experience, I have a much more compassionate response to my migraines when they occur. And I also have a much more compassionate response to when anyone else is in pain mm. because I, because I know that for myself. Mm. So I feel in many ways I, I've sort of, I've deconstructed my story around it. Um, and this simply seems to be part of my, my biological uh, inheritance. Mm -hmm. And of course the gift of it is, is that I have heartbreaking empathy for people who, who experience pain. I notice I feel really moved by this part of our conversation because I think a lot of times we approach something like body-centered inquiry because we're going to get rid of our pain and get to the bottom of it and, you know, discover that, oh, this happened to me and now I've forgiven it and I'm free and I'm happy and I'm, it's over. And here you've obviously gone so deeply into the practice and have discovered your helplessness. That's so profound to me. It's definitely has been for me, and it actually brought up something which I, I had the good fortune to to talk to Dr. Jenlin about this, is that I noticed that many people use body-centered inquiry as as a tool for for psychological healing, which is and is phenomenal, you know, for that for that. So there's a tendency that, you know, I, I've got an issue, I I sort of clarify the issue, I. I relax, I, I open my awareness to the felt sense, I notice where I feel it, I, I give it a name, I, I give it some space, I ask it what it needs, it begins to shift, I feel what the, I feel what the unmet need is, I bring empath empathy to that, I feel a little bit better, and then I'm on to the next issue. But, but what I noticed in, in my own practice with this, like just as every time I would work with my migraines and my physical pain, and I realized this is not going to be psychologically resolved. You know, th this just seems to be an experience of, of raw, unfiltered pain. 
the only way I could be with it was some kind of shift in identity that I needed to open to something larger than my capacity to fix it in order to be with it. And part of what happened is it, it just opens me to the suffering of others. That one of the venues for me when I'm caught in the migraine and I, and I open to it as fully and intimately as I can is to remind myself that other people feel this too. And there's a profound shift that happens. And what I've noticed for myself that when I do this process for myself or when I, I lead other people through it is what I find most interesting is when there is that felt shift. You know, when that, when that, that deep ache in your heart begins to move and shift and change and grief begins to turn into gratitude and you begin to turn your attention to explore what does gratitude feel like on the inside? How big could this feeling of gratitude get that it becomes a doorway into into the non-dual? It becomes a doorway into, into pure open presence. And to me, that's really the, the, the fruit of the practice is moving from this tightly bound self that's working on an issue to this capacity to hold it in, in awareness itself. Now, Jonathan, I'm curious if you'd be willing to lead our listeners in a short practice of some kind that might give them a sense of right now identifying the felt sense in their experience and investigating, becoming familiar, and potentially learning something from the process. Do you think we could do that? That would be great. In fact, you know, uh, why don't we do a little process around making a decision? Sure. Uh, because this one can be really, it can be really tangible and, uh, and helpful, I think. Perfect. Um, would it be helpful for me to preface this with a little story? Sure. Yeah, because I think this might be kind of a, I think the example might be, uh, might be helpful to get a sense of how this process works. Because it, be, it can be quite reliable. Uh, a number of years ago, I was invited to a conference on the psychology of happiness with Martin Seligman, and it was at a at a local university. And I was invited to be a presenter, and there'd be a kind of a, a faculty lunch and so forth. And I immediately said yes, uh, because I'm just kind of a greedy person. And I realized as time went by that I wasn't feeling great about it. And I was, you know, being asked for the copy and the headshot and all that sort of thing, and I kept resisting. And I thought, what, you know, what's going on? And finally, the deadline was coming. And I thought, you know, well, I have an option. I could always just say, I'm not going to do it because I felt so unsettled inside. And then I remembered this process. How this process works is you, when you have a decision to make, you, you break it down to kind of binaural, you know, two options, maybe three. And so I chose, okay, one option is I can just make up an excuse and beg out of the conference not too late. The other option is I can say, yes, I'll, I'll, I'll do it. What you do then, once you have that clear sense of what option you're going to choose, you choose one of those and then you, you tell your body, this is what I'm going to do. And then you pay attention to the, to the felt sense, to how your body holds that. So I thought, okay, I'm going to do it. I'm going to tell my body I'm going to do it. And immediately I began to feel this clench inside. I could feel a tightening in my, in my belly. I could feel myself beginning to hunch forward a little bit. And I recognized that I kind of brought attention to it. It had a feeling of kind of like being the, the younger brother, you know, not ready for prime time and feeling small. There was sort of a, uh, a shyness to it. And it was, a, it was a pretty yucky feeling. But I continued to try to bring some compassion to it. And then one of the pivotal questions is, well, what is this need? And so I asked, well, well what is this, this sort of tight, crunched down, small, shy feeling inside need? And the word help popped to mind right away. I thought, help, well, what does that mean? 
But then I then I realized I hadn't taught in an academic setting in a really long time. And really what I needed was some help to find out who was there and what kind of copy I would write. And then I asked myself, well, if I had that kind of help, would I still want to do this conference? And immediately my body just was a big yes. It just felt, it felt up, it felt excited. And it really helped me to understand that when we're conflicted around a decision, you know, something inside wants to do option A, but something inside doesn't. And oftentimes there's an unmet need in there. And when you, when you can get to that unmet need, it can be uh, sometimes very, very helpful. So perhaps I could lead a, just a short little practice on this. Yes, wonderful. Thank you. Wonderful. Great. So you might, if you like, you can close your eyes and you might want to slow down your breath a little bit. Just notice where you feel the breath on the inside. And you might reflect on some, some decision you've got up ahead of you. And it might be as something as practical as what are you going to have for lunch or what are you going to have for dinner? Or you might want to broaden it out to some decision you've got that is, feels a little bit unsettled. And over the next few months, you might kind of clarify what that issue is all about, what wants your attention. And if you have a sense of that, you might reflect now, what are your options? If you could break down two or possibly three options, you might do that now. In a few moments now, you might, I'll be asking you to reflect on what are those options, one of those options you might like to investigate. And then I'll be asking you a series of questions that might help you to kind of sense what it's like on the inside. So you might select one of these possibilities, just sense which one feels like it would like a little bit of investigation. It doesn't really matter. And then when you're ready, just tell your body, this is the one I'm going to do. And as you think about following this option, what felt sense begins to form on the inside? It might be strong and unmistakable. It might flicker or blip. It might be vague, unformed. What is that something inside? Where do you feel it? Does it have a shape or a size or a color? Is there a sense of its, of its density? If it could hold water, how much water could it hold? And you might just check in and sense, does it feel okay to, to stay with this inquiry? Does it feel safe? And if so, you might continue this investigation. When you imagine going down this option, what does it feel like on the inside? Whatever this felt sense may be, you might ask what it needs or how it wants you to be with it and just to listen. Noticing anything that may have shifted inside, anything that may have moved or changed. And, re and regarding this decision ahead of you, you might 
take a few moments to reflect on the following question. Regarding this decision, what advice do you have to give yourself? And if you were to do that, not perfectly or not all the time, but if you were to follow that, what would that feel like inside? What would that be like? And you might, if you like, kind of cycle back and spend a little more time with it, or you might explore another option. But quite often I find that just choosing one of these options will oftentimes lead to a felt sense of what might, what might be most wholesome. And then you can deepen the breath and kind of let this practice fall away. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you for that. I found it very personally helpful. So, oh, good. Very good. clarifying. Well, and again, that, that when we can tune into the gut feel, you know, that, that kinesthetic intuition, there's a tremendous amount of wisdom in there. And I noticed it didn't necessarily solve my problem, but it told me you could get more information in this direction and that direction, and that will then help you be able to come to a decision. Wow. Fantastic. Fantastic. Now, Jonathan, I notice we haven't talked very much about you and your evolution as a teacher. And I wonder if you can share with our listeners a little bit about your personal story, if you will, and how that brought you to be teaching now body-centered inquiry really is the focus of your work. I think from a from a very, very early age, uh, I, I had a very profound awakening experience as a child that really shifted my my attention in life. Can you tell us about that? Uh, well, uh, br briefly, um, when I was a kid, I grew up on a farm, a beautiful farm in the Pennsylvania Dutch country, and maybe six or seven or eight. Um, I just had an experience of leaning up against this big pine tree behind the house. And the best way I can describe it is I felt myself kind of merging with the tree. Uh, and in my seven-year-old seven, year, seven year old language, the best description I had for the experience was that the, that, that the stars in the sky felt like cells in my body. And... Then I, I ran inside to tell my mother and I told her and she looked at me and said, wash your hands, it's time for dinner, <laughs> which was a little bit of a searing experience for me, actually quite a searing experience. And I had this very deep internal experience of something I couldn't articulate. And that set me off. Uh, I was also raised a Quaker, which is a wonderful tradition to, uh, to grow up in. And fortunately, I discovered meditation when I was 15 and yoga, and I just knew instantly that this would be something I'd be doing for the rest of my life. And so I continued with my meditation practice through, you know, through high school and through college and found a community where we, we meditated together and, and then stumbled into an ashram when I was 25, uh, into the Kripalu Yoga Ashram and stayed for about 24 years. Oh my. So having a practice at the core was so, so powerful for me. But also, I think because it sensitized my, to my own suffering, it sensitized me to the suffering of others. And through all the different modalities that I've explored over the years through different yoga technologies and meditation technologies, what has been so helpful for me as a kind of a, a head-based person has been this potency of exploring this world on the inside. And now living outside of Washington, D.C. and working with 
you know, very, very bright, motivated, utterly stressed out people. It has been such a privilege to share these practices with with those who are really looking for for freedom in the midst of busy, very, very engaged lives. Now, I wanted to end on a note that draws on something you talk about in the Body Centered Inquiry audio training series. You talk about how at a certain point when someone becomes really familiar with the practice, that they have this experience of stepping into something that you call an evolutionary process, almost like the innate intelligence of the body takes over in a certain way in someone's life. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that, this evolutionary process that doing this kind of work can unleash in our experience. Um, yeah, you know, there there are two things about that. Um, one was uh, sitting a retreat with Sokni Rinpoche and, you know, engaging into all those technologies and has some very, very powerful experiences. And and I asked him in a little little private meeting I had with him, if I continue to practice these techniques, what can I expect? And I was so startled by his response. He looked at me and he smiled and he said, confidence. He said, you will develop confidence that you can be with anything. And I've really come to recognize that um, more and more in my life. A sense that no matter what arises, I can be with this. You know, that may come with age, oh, but I but I do think it comes with with practice. But I've also I've also found that really living in cooperation with the body does help us more and more move from the realm of the cognitive, you know, with this judging, comparing mind more and more into a sense of flow. Uh, I like to think of, you know, this is a very intuitive process and the linear rational mind is very, very good at comparing and judging and figuring things out. But the moments when I'm really in flow, you know, when I feel kind of hooked up or deep intimacy or connection to the mystery, there are three things that are not happening. You know, I'm not judging, I'm not comparing, and I'm not trying to figure things out. And I think what happens, what, I, what I'm sensing in my own life and with others is that the more we can open that internal sensitivity to what's here, not only do we heal what's between us and feeling free, but perhaps we live more and more out of that, out of, out of that flow space where our intuition becomes more alive. It affects our decision-making. It affects all of our choices. I am going to sneak in one final, final question here, which is you said a couple times this question, what's between us and being free? Almost as if this is a kind of ultimate inquiry or something that we can do with ourselves to really look at what's between us and being free. Why is that question so important to you, Jonathan? Well, it's, uh, I, I learned part of that protocol as, as part of like the, the focusing protocol, but I find it to be tremendously helpful because when I can sit and, and how, how I tend to practice it is really, you know, through the repetitive inquiry to ask myself that question repeatedly. Now what's between me and feeling free? Well, the first response might be, you know, I'm a little dehydrated. I, you know, I haven't, I didn't drink enough water today. So part of the practice it, it, in this approach is that you say hello to it, you set it to the side, then you ask again, well, what's been between me and feeling free? Oh, you know, there's this, this anxiety that I've got around this phone call I got to make next week. Say hello to that. You place that to the side. When I do that practice and when I, when I lead other people in that practice, quite often there'll be a point where either I or someone else will say, you know, other than these 15 things, I'm feeling pretty free. <laughs> and what it does is it gives you a sense of the landscape. 
where you can really sense, here's what's between me and feeling free, but it also cultivates a sense of who I am as the awareness of all of this. And that I find to be quite extraordinary. Sometimes when I wake up in the morning and, you know, I have those moments of clarity and then the software programs start booting up, you know, and before I get my feet on the floor, I'm already, you know, amped up into some anxiety. I might just lie there for a little while and just say, okay, so what's been, what's between me and feeling free right now? And I might name, you know, four or five things. And sometimes just the naming of them, the recognizing of them will cultivate a little bit more, a little bit more relaxation. I've been speaking with Jonathan Faust. He's created with Sounds True an audio training series on body-centered inquiry, meditation training to awaken your inner guidance, vitality, and loving heart. And it's packed with guided meditations, practices, and some pretty good wisdom stories and some funny stories, Jonathan, as well. It's really quite an amazing training program that you've created. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for being a guest on Insights at the Edge, and thank you everyone for listening. SoundsTrue.com, many voices, one journey.